You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning, River City. You can have a seat. Um, Today is traditionally celebrated as Palm Sunday, the day recognized on the church calendar when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the week before his crucifixion. By God's grace in our study in Luke, we will be reading Luke's account of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem today. So you can grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get you one so you can follow along. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. Now, in terms of continuing our series in Luke, um, we've broken Luke up into like five large chunks, and every spring, January through about May, we've covered a a part of it. Um, So in terms of the text itself, a lot happens between the text we're going to read today and Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, In the timeline of history, it's a week. For us, it's We're not going to actually get to Luke's account of the crucifixion until next Easter, like a year from now. That being said, um, this coming Friday is Good Friday. We're going to gather here at 6.30 p.m. to consider Jesus' death on the cross. And then next Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together, even as we continue in Luke's gospel kind of a chunk at a time. So don't be confused. Today is Palm Sunday, and we're covering the triumphal entry text. We're not going to skip ahead next week and go to the crucifixion and the resurrection, specifically in Luke. Just Maybe that's something you're like, great, thank you for that information. Doesn't matter. Anyway, here's where we're at. We're going to keep plugging away through Luke. Um, And in many ways, our text this week and our text next week go hand in hand. Uh, So let's read our text for today, uh, and then we'll get after it, and I'll explain a little bit more what I mean. Luke uh, 19, starting in verse 28, we're going to read through Luke uh, uh, 19, verse 40 this morning. So 28 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord today. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Now, in the narrative, in the context, Jesus is on his way with his group of close disciples and the crowd of disciples, maybe lowercase d, who have gathered now to follow him almost wherever he goes. And Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He said multiple times already in Luke why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. Now his disciples don't always understand this, but he's told them, here's what I'm, I'm going to do. And this entrance is actually connected to the rest of chapter 19, all the way through verse 48. You could argue that his entrance into Jerusalem doesn't stop with his entrance here on a colt, but it actually continues through next week, which is why I kind of said that this week and next week are tied together. You could almost argue that Jesus' triumphal entry includes today's text and the text we're going to look at next week. So this is kind of a part one and a part two, if you will. Jesus enters as the as uh, enters Jerusalem as the rightful king. That's what we're going to see today. Next week, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He laments. He grieves the lostness of the people. He he weeps over them as a faithful priest weeps. And also, after weeping over the lostness of the people, then clears out the temple with holy authority as a righteous prophet. So, in in very tangible terms. Over the next two weeks, this whole section is Jesus asserting himself as the true and better prophet, as the true and better priest, as the true and better king. Now, we're just going to look at the first one today because we don't have time to cover all of them. Some of you have things to do today. So we're just going to look at one of them. Jesus establishing himself as the rightful king, and not just king over the Jews, but king of all kings and lord over all lords ruler of creation and ruler over every human heart. And this is the question that that everyone in our text and every one of us has to answer when it comes to Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? Is he is he just a teacher? Is he a compassionate friend or is he lord? Is he master? Is he king? That's the question. Who is Jesus? What do we do with him? And the answer I think we'll find in this little section in Luke as Jesus is entering Jerusalem is that Jesus is the king and he is worthy of worship. Jesus is the king and he is worthy of worship. And in our text, I found four proofs, if you will, things that are, are, are rising to the surface, this reality that Jesus is king and he is worthy. Four things I see in this entrance into Jerusalem, that Jesus shows his sovereign purpose that Jesus proves he is the king of peace, that he has prophetic privilege, he has birthright, and fourth, that he receives praise that is rightfully his. So we're going to look at the text today, King Jesus kind of on display. And here's the, the first proof, if you will, that Jesus is king and that he is worthy of worship, is that Jesus shows his sovereign purposes. And I'll unpack what I mean by that. Look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, is how Luke starts this next section. Now he's talking about Jesus, and you might ask the question, well, well, what things? When he has said what things? Jesus has just told the parable 
of the ten minas, blessing for the faithful and judgment for those who are unfaithful. Jesus ends there and then begins the journey up to Jerusalem from Jericho. And I say up because it's about a 17-mile travel between where Jericho is and where Jerusalem is. And over that 17-mile run, there's a rise of about 4,000 feet in elevation. So you were literally going up to Jerusalem. On the map that I grabbed from Google, thanks Google, up in the top right of your, from your perspective, you see Jericho. And down a little bit to the left, to the west, southwest, is Jerusalem. So you're going down a little bit south, but you're going up in elevation. And on the way from, Jer- uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem is Bethany, on the east side of Jerusalem, near the Mount of Olives. So on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had passed through Bethany. Bethany sits about two miles from the edge of the city of Jerusalem and is the home to a man named Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. Now Luke doesn't tell us a lot about these friends of Jesus in his gospel account, but John does. John's gospel tells us that Lazarus was Jesus' close friend who had died. Jesus waited before going to his home. And when he finally arrives, is met by his sister who is weeping and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. And that's where we read Jesus wept. And then he says to Lazarus, dead in the grave three days, says, Lazarus, get up and come out of the grave. And he rises Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha were the sisters who one was working and one was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so Jesus had friends in Bethany. He would stay with them while he was in the area. They would be his friends and his hosts. And during this last week before Passover, it appears that Jesus and his disciples actually stayed in Bethany and would go into Jerusalem each day to teach and prepare for what's to come. So as they get closer to Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells two of his disciples to to go on ahead into the village, and you're going to find a colt, which is the name for a young horse or a young donkey, Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of it. So they go into the village and they find a young donkey. Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, which was enough. And they take the colt and they bring it to Jesus. I love that phrase, the Lord has need of it. Two things stand out about that passage that tell, us, tell me something about Jesus' sovereign purposes and his sovereign actions. One, he told them exactly where they would find the colt and what kind of questions might come their way. And two, Jesus calls himself Lord. Two things. Now first, he says, when you enter the city, there's going to be a colt nearby the entrance, essentially. As you enter, it should be right there, so just go and tie it and bring it here. This insight that Jesus portrays or gives to his disciples, it's the same language that we see in Mark 14 when Jesus tells two of his disciples to go ahead into Jerusalem a little later in this week before Easter. Go into Jerusalem. You're going to find a man. He's going to be carrying a jar of water. Follow that man until he comes to his master's home and then talk to his master and say, sir, we'd like to use your upper room to celebrate the Passover. And his disciples go into Jerusalem in Mark 14, and what do they find? A man carrying a jar of water, and they follow him, and they rent his room, and then they celebrate the Passover together. Mark 14, 16, the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it 
just as he had told them. And they started to prepare the Passover. Same language here. In John chapter 1, when Jesus is calling his disciples, he calls a man named Philip. Philip has a friend named Nathaniel. And so Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, I think we found the Messiah. Like, I think he's here. Moses and the prophets wrote about him. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's the one who wonders, can anything good come from Nazareth? But he goes with Philip anyway. And as Nathaniel is coming near to Jesus, Jesus says this, John chapter 1, verses 48 through 50. He says, behold, as he looks at Nathaniel, he goes, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? I don't know you. How do you know me? Jesus answered this, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, Nathanael continues. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Same sovereign purpose and insight. So Jesus, all throughout his ministry, from the very beginning, displays divine insight. He told the disciples exactly where they would find that colt, what condition it would be in, unridden, tied up, and available. And that if anyone asked, why, do you, why are you untying the colt? Just tell them the Lord has need of it. And while it's very possible that these owners knew who Jesus was, he probably had friends in and around Bethany, I think it shows Jesus displaying sovereign intentionality and purpose. Now, the second thing that I brought up, which is interesting about this whole untying the colt thing, listen, if they ask you why you're untying the colt, tell them the Lord has need of it. Jesus refers to himself as Lord, Kyrios. It means master or ruler or, or Lord. It, it's a title of authority. Now, in most of the gospel accounts that we read, Many people call Jesus Lord. They call him teacher. They call him rabbi. They call him master. But he doesn't refer to himself in that way. But he does here. So it seems to be a little bit of a shift in the way Jesus is even talking about himself as he draws near to Jerusalem. And so I see it as this, that all things, all things, including a young colt, are now being put into the service into service to accomplish God's sovereign purposes through Jesus. The Lord has need of it. And that's why I, I use that phrase, sovereign purpose, because Jesus is very intentional, very purposeful about fulfilling everything that the prophets of the Old Testament have said concerning the Messiah. And in his divine sovereignty, Jesus is fulfilling, he's accomplishing that purpose. And we, we'll see it over and over again, particularly going forward from here, once he enters Jerusalem and all that happens between now and the crucifixion in the coming weeks, Jesus intentionally and methodically is fulfilling. He's answering all the promises of the Old Testament prophets speaking about the Messiah. He's saying over and over again in big and small ways, I am the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, by fulfilling all of this. So make no mistake, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is a coronation entrance. It's a coronation. Now, we don't do kings in the United States. 
It's part of our history, actually. We rebelled against one, right? We'll never have a king again. Dang it. Right? We are a representative republic. But in a monarchy, in a monarchy, the coronation is an intentional spectacle. And each component of it, each little piece of it has meaning and history. In fact, the British monarchy will be celebrating a coronation, I think it's in May. The moment Queen Elizabeth died, her son Charles immediately becomes king of England or the English Commonwealth or whatever it is. Immediately, that happens upon her last breath. But he has not been coronated yet. He hasn't been crowned king. He is the king, but he's not been crowned. That happens at a coronation. Now, the entrance into Jerusalem is the beginning of Jesus' coronation as king. Until now, Jesus' kingship has been hidden a little bit. It's been obscured in some ways, but now it's coming into focus. His purpose is becoming crystal clear. The reason for his ministry, the reason that he came to seek and save the lost is coming into full view right now as he enters Jerusalem. This is a coronation entrance, but not as a conquering king on a war horse, but as a peaceful king on a colt, which leads to the second proof of Jesus' kingship, that Jesus is the king of peace. Look at verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on it. They set Jesus on it. They covered the donkey with their cloaks, and then as he rode along, verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. Matthew, Mark, and John also tell us that the people cut leafy branches off of nearby trees, palm trees in some cases, and laid them out on the ground in front of Jesus as he rode. This is a first century red carpet entrance, is what this is. You do this for nobility and for royalty. And look at the words that they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. They are blessing Jesus as king. Mark 11 records this phrase coming from the crowds as well. Mark 11 verses 9 and 10. Hosanna, which is a phrase of save us, save O king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, uh, coming kingdom of our father David. So when blind Bartimaeus, a few chapters ago, or a few, a few weeks ago for us, calls out, son of David, have mercy on me. He is saying what the people are saying. The coming of the kingdom of David. Jesus is king from the line of David, who was the pinnacle of godly kings ruling in Israel. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is not only a declaration of his kingship, it's a specific declaration that he is the fulfillment of the prophetic promises spoken in Isaiah chapter 9. We read this at Christmas time all the time. This is a Christmas uh, Old Testament passage for us. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We'll come back to that. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Here it is. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you catch that? 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom with justice and righteousness forever. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and the, uh, the cheers and the, of the crowd, there's a declaration being made. Jesus is saying, I am the rightful king from the line of David. David's throne is my throne and David's kingdom is my kingdom. And not just as a, a temporary monarch. David eventually died. But my reign will be just and righteous forever. Right? And remember what I said, that Jesus was showing his sovereign purpose, the perfect fulfillment of all these prophetic promises. John 12 describes Jesus' entrance like this. John 12, verses 12 through 15. Sorry, I know we're jumping around a little bit today, but there's good stuff here. John 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, John gives us a little insight into what's happening in the crowds who are in Jerusalem already who hear Jesus is coming. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written. This is what John quotes. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And you know where John's quoting that from? It's from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah, years before Jesus enters the scene in the flesh, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding to Jerusalem on a colt is the is the proving, if you will, of a royal entrance into the city by a king who is in the midst of reigning in peace and prosperity. He doesn't ride into the city on a war horse with blasts of trumpets and his armies behind him. He rides into the city on a donkey with shouts of praise from his disciples who are celebrating his rule and reign. This is a coronation. So follow me on this. Isaiah 9 prophesies that God's promised Messiah will be called Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we're coming back to that? Here we're coming back to it. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is riding into, his, into Jerusalem for his crowning as king. The Prince of Peace is entering Jerusalem to be crowned king of all kings. That's the second thing we see is proof of his kingship. Or, uh, yeah, two. Three... Jesus has prophetic privilege. Now, I use this phrase, privilege, because it has a P and all the other ones did. But the idea here is birthright. I'm trying to help me myself remember. I'm slow. This is short but significant. Kingship is Jesus' birthright. Not only do we have all these prophetic fulfillments in Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. We'll see more and more in the weeks ahead. But if you go back to Luke chapter 2, another Christmas passage, right? There's shepherds in a field. My kids love this passage when we read it at Christmas. Like you can just picture the shepherds in the field and the angel shows up and he says, fear not, because clearly they're probably freaking out. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy. And then the angel says, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a child 
who is Christ the Lord, a Savior, you're going to find him wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then Luke 2 tells us that suddenly a multitude of heavenly hosts, that is some kind of crazy angelic choir, shows up in the sky and then starts singing. Glory to God in the highest, they say. Look at Luke 19, verse 37. As Jesus is drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, he's kind of got to go up the Mount of Olives, up and around and back down to Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Here it is. They began to rejoice and praise God. Look at verse 38. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So follow me. Luke 2, Jesus is welcomed into creation with a choir of angels singing glory to God in the highest. And in Luke 19, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, welcomed into Jerusalem with the choir, if I can say it that way, of disciples saying glory to God in the highest. Kingship is Jesus' birthright. It is a prophetically promised privilege of his and his alone. And the king is worthy of praise. And that's the fourth proof, if you will. The people bless Jesus with shouts of praise. They give glory to God. Now, I know we've been in Luke for a long time. We've broken it up into sections. But this is the first, if not one of the first times, that Jesus doesn't stop people from worshiping him and telling other people about who he is. For most of Jesus' ministry, you see it sometimes. Where he'll heal someone, he'll be like, don't tell anybody. And then they go and tell everyone anyway. But this is the first time that we see really in, in clear detail that Jesus doesn't stop them from praising him so publicly. Most of the time it's because Jesus will say, but my time has not come yet. Even way at the beginning, his first miracle is his, his mother tells him, hey, uh, the wedding has run out of wine. Can you do something? And he's like, mother, my time has not yet come, but I'm going to help you out anyway, right? And here, none of that. So what I see in this is that all of Jesus' ministry has been not only intentional, but moving towards a very specific point in time. And that point, as John 3 says, that the Son of Man will be lifted up. And here, in Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified. He'll be killed. He'll be buried, and three days later resurrected from the grave. Jesus knows, and he's leading to this point, that this is the beginning of the end. This is the inauguration of his kingly reign. And so while before it was not yet for him, now it's time. It's time. And so Jesus doesn't stop people from offering their praise to him. And what's funny is the Pharisees who are with the crowd, they don't like it. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. This is improper. This is too much. They're calling you king. They're referencing King David. As the other gospel writers account, don't you realize what they are saying, Jesus? Are you really going to let them say this? And it's almost as if Jesus says, oh, I know exactly what they're saying. I know exactly what they're saying. If these people were silent, the very stones would cry out, he responds. Now, we know that rocks don't cry out. 
But in essence, Jesus is making the final, his final claim in this little passage and offering his final proof of his kingship. Since the fall of Adam, all creation has been groaning under the weight of pain and sin. All of it, all creation has been waiting for the revealing of the one who will free it from bondage. And when he arrives, of course, those who were in bondage would rejoice. They should rejoice. I mean, just think about it. Even in in our ways, the temporary suffering we experience and how after just a little bit of time, how much we groan under the weight of that suffering. And that's not to minimize any of our suffering. I'm just saying we all know what that feels like. I felt it in a really stupid, superficial way this week when my wife says, by the way, we might get like 12 more inches of snow next week. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I know that's silly, but even at that superficial level, I groan under the weight, right? Hopefully I can get the, shovel, the snow off my roof so my roof doesn't groan under the weight. And that's just a superficial, like, stupid illustration. There are far more weighty things that we carry around in our lives and things we suffer with and cancer diagnosis and loss and death and chronic pain, and we, we, we live under the weight of these things, and we groan often under the weight. That's what's happening here. Creation is groaning under the weight of sin, and so when relief is on the way, what would you do? Of course you would rejoice. That's what Jesus is saying. If they didn't do it, the rest of creation would, because they're all waiting for me. Only the king deserves this kind of procession. Only the king deserves this kind of praise. And so Jesus proves his kingship. He proves his worthiness because he receives the praise that's offered him. He's received, his receiving of public praise is one more proclamation of him saying, I am the rightful king. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as the true and better king, showing his sovereign purposes and fulfilling all the promises and the prophetic uh, realities of the coming Messiah. Jesus rides in as the Prince of Peace on his way to receive his crown as King of Kings. Jesus affirms what is his right from birth, receiving kingly glory at birth and receiving glory as he enters Jerusalem. And fourth, that Jesus receives praise because it is due him and due him alone. This is a triumphant and a glorious entry into Jerusalem question is, what are some things we can take from a passage like this? And I, I've just started to ask a couple, I have three questions of application that I've started to wrestle with this week that maybe you can as well. Question one is this, do we shout Hosanna? We don't read that phrase here in Luke, but it loosely translates in Mark's gospel, uh, save us, we pray, save us, O King, Hosanna to the Son of David, O good King Jesus, save us. It's the first question I asked at the beginning. Is Jesus your king? Have you called on him to save you or not? Every human being must wrestle with this question, and I want to ask you to consider it today. And before you quickly move on to point two, thinking that, well, of course, I'm in church today, aren't I? Verse 39 tells us that there were Pharisees in the crowd. They were amongst the disciples. Maybe they were even intrigued by Jesus. But when push came to shove, a public declaration of Jesus' rule was too much. It's too much. Because if we don't believe we need a Savior, then we remain on the side of the road, and the rest of the royal 
procession just keeps going. Those who join the procession, who join the royal coronation, are those who have called out Hosanna to the king. Save us. Do we shout Hosanna? That's the first question. Two, is our praise hindered? Or maybe I should ask it this way. Where is our praise hindered? What's interesting is the Pharisees don't only refuse to praise Jesus, they seek to hinder the praise of others. Jesus, stop them from doing what they're doing. So what voices, what things, both outside of us and maybe in here, in our own hearts, hinder our praise that we should and can offer freely to Jesus? Are there things Jesus has us walking in right now that we do not understand? Are, are you sure there's going to be a cult tied up? I'm going to look really foolish if I go in there and there's not there. What happens if I say to them the Lord needs it and then they call the cops? Or the first century equivalent, right? Can we walk in faithful obedience to Christ Jesus without full understanding of how it's all going to work out? That's the question. Are there things that Jesus is asking of us, things that we may or may not be willing to give up, and yet perhaps the Lord has need of it? Because we are just stewards of everything, right? Our money, our time, our families, our body. Where does our desire for control hinder our praise? What fear, what fears keep our praise of Jesus hidden or guarded? There may be a time to be subtle, and there may be times to be open about it, but what does it look like to not operate out of fear of what others might think, not out of self-protection, not out of self-absorption, but sensitive to the work of the Spirit and walking in faith rather than fear and praising Him by faith? Or what pain overshadows our rejoicing that might hinder our praise? Pain and rejoicing coexist for the follower of Jesus. And Jesus rides toward the city with shouts of praise. And in the next verse, verse 41, we'll look at next week, Jesus weeps. He grieves over the lostness of people. Where are we? we are rejoicing and a weeping people. So are there things that are overshadowing our rejoicing? This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit's, Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We can join with creation in unhindered praise, declaring glory in the highest. And that's the third takeaway. Not the question of, is our praise or where is our praise hindered? But asking essentially, what does our praise sound like? Does it sound like glory in the highest? That we would be loosed, 
to, to hopeful and unhindered praise. To not let the rocks worship in our place. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt as the Prince of Peace coming to receive his crown. He would die, be buried, and rise again. And when Jesus ascends to the heavens, he promises he'll return again. And he won't be returning on a colt. He won't. He'll be returning on a white war horse with a crown on his head and fire in his eyes. And he'll ride into the city as the one who has already conquered every enemy and struck down every one of our foes. And we get to then be in the choir to praise God. Glory in the highest. The one who has saved us. The one who has defeated all of our enemies. The one who is making all things new. I want us to look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem not only as a historical reality, a Palm Sunday remembrance, not only as a significant piece of biblical theology, like this is part of the work of redemption, which it is, but also as a picture of the promise that the king who is crowned, not with a crown of gold, he's crowned with a crown of thorns, but who will return with many crowns in glory. That's our king. And he is worthy of every ounce of praise that we can offer. Glory in the highest. As Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to join in the coronation of Jesus as King. For some of us, we've been comfortable being in proximity to Jesus, but calling Him King is, has been far more difficult. Would you overcome that barrier to surrender in our hearts that might be present? That those of us who don't yet call you King would fall down on our faces and proclaim you the king that you are. We confess that there are many things that hinder our praise, things we don't understand, burdens we carry, griefs we bear. And so we ask for your help, not merely to understand, although we do ask for understanding, but for trust. That you'd help us to see that whatever you have need of in our lives is yours already. So we would loose our grip for control that we might praise you with whatever those things are. Would you meet us in our place of fear that we might have courage? That we might take hold of our identity as new creations in you, hopeful of what's to come, that we might be a people who are both weeping and rejoicing. And I pray you'd receive from us worship that is due your name, that is unhindered, 
that's unencumbered by the cares of this world, that is not dismissive of our, of our pain and our struggle, but that sees it clearly, that is sustained by your grace and that is hopeful because you are our King. You rule and reign here and you promise that you're coming again and you will wipe away every tear. And so we praise you with hope. Give us fresh eyes to see the sacrifice of Jesus that purchased this for us, that, that secures for us our hope. As the bread and the cup remind us of Jesus' sovereign purpose to, to seek out and to save the lost and to kill death in himself that we might have life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.